0: to the Lord as we open the Word. You've told us, Father, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Truly, His is a mighty name powerful name call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and so we praise you and we thank you for that amazing name the amazing person our Lord Jesus Christ as we open your word might you be pleased to open it to us we pray because we need we need what you have for us Father don't know what it might be for any person here this morning. But Lord, we need what you have to give us. So may our hearts be ready to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading uh, this morning at verse 16 and then just reading through verse 22. Paul writes to this church Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do you ever long for a deeper experience with God? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm just asking you and just in the stillness of your own heart. Do you ever long for a deeper experience with God? In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer asks, why is it that some people find God in a way that others don't? It's a good question. But by by finding God, what he means, what he means by that is is why do some seem to experience God in a deeper way with a greater awareness of his presence. So he he goes on and and, and he challenges, he challenges his reader, just you you could do the same thing, just you know, pick a random number of of what you might consider to be godly, godly saints, you know, whether whether from, from the Bible, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, I mean, Abraham and Moses and Joseph, we, we heard some about him this morning as we read the scriptures, or, or, or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah, or you could go to the New Testament and Mary and, and John and Paul and Peter and Aquila and Priscilla, and you can go post-biblical times, you know, on through some of the ages of the church fathers to the great reformers of Martin Luther and and, and John Calvin, and you can come on into the uh, into our more modern times of, of some of those that just seem maybe because as you as you've read them or heard they just they, they, they just seem there's something there's there's something about them just to have um, what you might might say uh, just some, some deeper awareness of, of, of God's presence and and relationship with Him and and, and he told her when I said he said you know if, if you observe your list he says you'll, you're going to see all kinds of differences among those individuals he said if you, if you look at your list you 're going to find differences as as wide as as human life itself you're you're going to find differences of race and nationality and education and personality and habits and personal qualities you're going to find all kinds of differences yet yet they all walked each in in his or her day uh, upon upon this high road of of spiritual living that just seemed to be above the common way. What was it, he's asking, what was it that made them alike? In the midst of all those differences, what was it that made them alike? Tozer continues, and I quote, something in them was open to heaven. Something which urged them Godward. They had spiritual awareness and they went on to cultivate it until it became the biggest thing in their lives. In this statement, they differed from the average person in that when they felt the inward longing, they did something about it. They did something about it. They acquired the lifelong habit of spiritual response. They were not disobedient to the heavenly vision, or as David put it neatly, when you said, seek my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, I will seek. Powerful. What distinguished these people wasn't how much they knew about God. And what distinguished them was not how much they had done for God. Rather what distinguished them was their receptivity to God. They lived God-word lives. Now that word God-word isn't a word that we use much, is it? It's been around probably 4 or 500 years. So it's not a new word. It's not a new word in, in Christian vocabulary and talking about, uh, about the Christian life and our relationship with God. It's been around a long time. I, I picked up the word, quite honestly, by reading people like A. W. Tozer. Uh, John Piper is one who he's written a couple books, devotional books. He, he describes a God word life as a life that is leaning toward God. Leaning toward God. About five years ago, there was a a book that popularized this phrase, lean in. It was uh, authored by Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg, and she wrote the book uh, to help women achieve success in the business world. The, The phrase, lean in, it's based on, on the idea of, of a group of people who are, they're sitting around a table and, and they're discussing something. This is the picture that she's using in that. And th- those who want their ideas heard, those who want to affect the course of the discussion are those who will lean in toward the table. If you will, they're, they're leaning in, you know, seeking to, to, to take a little bit more central position to be heard, to be noticed, so that what they have to say will, will, will resonate Whereas those who are content just to do whatever other people want them to do, or what other people say, they'll, they'll just sort of lean out, you know, the chair, the, the chair and It's an interesting, interesting picture. Well, from there, that, that, that phrase, lean in, caught on, and over the last several years, it's become really the, like the two-word uh, piece of advice for succeeding in a variety of fields, or, or overcoming obstacles of all kinds, we're sort of told to lean into that, and that's it's really, really bringing your attention to that, to, to that, to that issue, to whatever it might be, bringing attention in order to see that happen, or to see that obstacle go away, or to find that victory, to find that success, leaning into it. A Godward life is a life of leaning into God. I think the psalmists says it well in Psalm 63, 8, where he says this, My soul follows close behind you. My soul follows close behind you. That, 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 that's where it, my, my soul clings to you. Even though it's Old English, I really like the way the King James Version translates this. My soul follows hard after you keeps you close. It's a a word that has the idea of of to come to the same place as another person. That's a a God word life that follows close after the Lord, that clings to the Lord, that follows hard after the Lord. Follow hard. I mean, this isn't something that just accidentally happens. You sort of sit in your recliner and, and, and this kind of life happens to you. That's not It's not what it's about. Godward life. I believe that 1 Thessalonians 5 and these verses that we read this morning that are coming at the end of this letter that Paul writes to this church, I believe these verses describe for us a Godward church. A Godward church. A church that wants to make an impact in in a dark hour must be a godward church we've noticed as we've worked through the, the this text that in in chapter five here actually from verses twelve to twenty two Paul just rapid fires a bunch of commands doesn't really develop them doesn't turn each of them into messages, but just rapid fires these commands as he's getting ready to sign off not unusual in in let literature and letters of that day, but one after another, one after another. The final ones that we're coming down to here in verses 16 through 22, I believe, describes a church whose life leans into God. That's what we need. It's the kind of church we need to be. These days in which we live, in which everyone is, is up in arms and and, and it, it seems in some sectors, it seems in some surveys, it seems in some polls that, that the church is, is increasingly losing its effectiveness, its lost its respect a long time ago. It seems to have diminishing impact on culture and the world in which we live. And, and there can be all kinds of, of fretting and anxiety and, oh, what are we going to do? We need to lean into God. Godward church. So, Paul, I believe, in these words, describes that. Just look, look here in, 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 these first, in these first three verses, I think we see here some marks of a Godward church. And I, I would say some, because I, you, you could probably add to this list by going to other places in, in, in the scriptures. But, but hear from, from this that Paul has written, verses 16 through 18, where he says, Rejoice. Always pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Remember, we tend to come to these things and say we take it very personally and yes, you should take it personally. But Paul's writing to a church. He's saying to that church, church, rejoice always. Church, pray without ceasing. Church, in everything give thanks. This is God's will. And you can't be any clearer than that. This is is what God desires for you. This is, in fact, what God requires of you, church. Rejoicing, praying, thanking. Those are Godward behaviors. Rejoicing in the Lord, praying to the Lord, thanking the Lord. And he throws in these challenging words of always and without ceasing and in everything. Everything. In other words, he's talking about this being true beyond just our weekly worship service on Sunday. He's talking about this being a way of living, a way that we live in our homes and a way we live in our workplaces and in our schools and in our communities and the way that we as a church are, whether we are the church gathered or the church scattered, always without ceasing in everything, rejoicing, praying, thanking. This is Godward behavior. not necessarily Godward behavior to put all this on for an hour once a week. Godward living is this is a way of living. Notice he says rejoice, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Well, Paul's already had some things to say about this. Look back with me, if you will, to to, to chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In the beginning, when he's writing to them, he says, he writes to these believers, he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Listen, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice the source of this joy was the Holy Spirit, and the reason for their joy was the receptivity of this church to the gospel, the, the, the cause of this joy was their salvation. Wherever the gospel goes forth and, and people respond to it in faith, there is joy, we are told in the gospels. There is joy in heaven and there is joy on earth. And this group of believers, if you will, from day one, as the first ones were hearing the gospel, they were believing, they were putting their trust in Christ, their, their sins forgiven, their lives being transformed. There's joy. And every day, another believer was being added to this Thessalonian church. There was more joy and more joy because the word was coming. They were receiving it. They were responding. it, And, and, and they, were, they were coming to know Christ as Savior. You see that receptivity, receiving what God was giving. They were rejoicing. Over in chapter 2, again, Paul, Paul brings up in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20, he says, For what is our hope? Or joy, or crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. The reason. For the joy, again, was the receptivity of the Thessalonians to Paul's ministry. There is joy in seeing God work transformingly in the lives of receptive people. When, when, when the word of God is preached or when you sit down with someone and you share with them the word of God or you share with them the gospel and they respond to that in faith, there is joy in that. And this was a church who, when they first put their faith in Jesus Christ and they were saved, it produced joy. And as they continued to listen, and as they continued to grow in their faith, as they continued to grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul saw what was happening, they, they caused rejoicing in him because of their, rece- their receptivity to, to, the, to the ministry that Paul had. And then over in chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Interesting. Again, the receptivity of the Thessalonians to the gospel and the ministry of Paul, it produced joy for these Christians and their joy caused Paul to rejoice, which tells me this, that joy is contagious. And it was happening there in that church. This was a church This was a church that knew what it meant to rejoice and to have joy. Remember, this was a church in the midst of affliction. This was a church that was opposed by, by so many in their city. This was a church that was persecuted. This, this was a church that was in the city that had chased Paul out of town. And yet, here, this was a church of joy. A church that not only experienced joy, but a church that caused joy. In others as well. And Paul, as he writes at the end of this letter, he says to them, Rejoice always. This isn't a matter of denying real feelings. This isn't a matter of denying that there's times that we feel real anxiety, that we go through times of real fear, that there are things that stir within our spirit anger. Rejoice always is choosing to rejoice no matter the circumstances. It's finding strength in the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah used that phrase. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's joy in our unchanging God. It's joy in His unfailing work. It's joy in His forgiveness. It's joy in His mercy and in His grace. It's joy that we have in His victory. We sang of that this morning. A Godward church is filled with joy. A Godward church isn't consumed with gloom and defeat. We're going down. A Godward church is filled with joy, Not, not fake joy, not coming in and trying to manipulate us all so we all feel happy and go out with smiley faces on but true, deep-seated joy because of who God is, because of what He has done, because the victory is secured. He's won it already, and He is working in us in mighty and powerful ways for His glory. All the time He's doing that. All the time He's doing that. There is joy. Godward church is filled with joy. He He goes on, He says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Once again... Paul has given us a glimpse of what this means because he's talked about it already in this letter. Go back to chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 5. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, our election by God. He prays for them. Paul prayed regularly for the Thessalonians. He says, we pray for you all. We pray for every one of you. Paul did not just use, I'm praying for you as I like, hi, how you doing? I don't really care and I'm not gonna say that but I'm just gonna say that I'm wondering how you're doing because that's what you're supposed to do to be a polite person. This isn't all pray for you and then forgetting about it. These verses show us, if you will, this is how Paul spoke to God when he entered God's presence and when he came to God on behalf of these people. This is, these are some things that he said. He prayed for them. Then you go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that night and day we've been praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Praying exceedingly, praying beyond measure, praying out of extreme earnestness. And what was his prayer? He desperately wanted to be able to return to them. He had been chased out of town. He had not been able to come back. He loved these believers. He he was concerned for them because they were still so young in the faith. This church was still so new. And he desperately, desperately wanted to get back to encourage them, to just be among them, to enjoy their fellowship, the strengthening, the refreshing, the renewal that they brought to him. He so much wanted to be there, but there were obstacles, he says earlier, but Satan hindered. So Paul and his team, they, they prayed. They prayed. They prayed earnestly. And in spite of these obstacles, they, they, just, uh, they just flat out, Night and day, they earnestly ask God to remove the obstacles, change the circumstances. Let us return, Lord God, let us go back to that church. That's specific kind of praying. So Paul prayed in that way. And, and then he continues on in verse 11 of that same chapter with another prayer. "Now may our God and Father Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you." May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is how he prayed for them. This is how he prayed for them. We're to do it, Paul says, and Paul instructed this church to do it without ceasing. Constantly. Without failing. Without failing. Paul learned this from Jesus who said men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. In other words, if we're losing heart in some, some area of life, if we're losing heart in a workplace, if we're losing heart in a marriage, if we're losing heart at workplace, good evidence for really not praying. Not always to to pray, Jesus said, and not lose heart. And and the night that he was betrayed there in the garden, Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. This is not, this idea, this command to, to, to pray without ceasing is not a new idea. Not a new idea. A Godward church invests itself in regular praying. Intense praying. Even times of extended praying. We come to to pray without ceasing. We say, well, well, nobody can do that like 24-7 because we have other things to do, so it must mean something other than that. Well, yeah. And so we say, well, then it just must refer to just, you know, be in the spirit, be in the attitude of prayer so that at any given time, in in any given circumstance, you can stop and pray. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a sense in which we need to, we're we're sort of, you know, a Godward life, quite honestly, a Godward life is just like throughout the day gonna always be coming to the Lord. Be coming to the Lord about this and about that and about this and about that. So yes, yes, it it certainly is the idea of that attitude and readiness for praying all the time. But when you look at what Paul wrote to these Christians and when you look at his example, this is more than just that. Praying without ceasing is those times of deliberately coming together as a church, to unite our hearts before the Lord and to seek him, to earnestly seek him, to ask for his help, to ask for his provision, to ask for his deliverance, for his protection, whatever it might be, to come to him those times in our own lives when we devote ourselves to prayer, not just saying, hey, you know, I get up in the morning and say, God, help me today, and then I'm just sort of praying on and off throughout the day, And, and so there I prayed without ceasing. No, no, following the example of Jesus who we're told in Mark would rise very early in the morning while it was still dark, he would go out to a desolate place and he would pray. Now, would he pray throughout the day? I'm sure. Would he commune with the Father throughout the day? Absolutely. But for Jesus... In his practice, in his busyness, he'd get up early before everything began to happen, before all the markets were opening, and before everyone began to bustle about with with their daily responsibilities. He would go, he would get up early while it was still quiet. The sun wasn't even up. He found a place to be alone. And he spent time with his father in prayer. That's deliberate deliberate, intentional praying. See, prayer is part of being receptive to God. If a Godward life is being receptive, to, uh, being receptive to God, then prayer is a part of that. It's where we first become receptive to his conviction and his correction and his leading and his encouragement. A, a Godward church is going to be a church that prays together. That's why in our worship we, we include some time of prayer. It's why we encourage our adult Bible fellowships to have times of prayer together. It's why we encourage our growth groups and discipleship groups to pray together. It's why we encourage our ministry teams to pray together. It's why we have prayer groups. We have a senior prayer circle that meets on Wednesday mornings. I love praying with our senior saints on Wednesday mornings. There's still room. We have empty seats, and we'd love to have you join us. We have have a prayer group that meets on Wednesday night. We do some special prayer times. We're going to do an International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church coming up in November. We, we do other special prayer services for the church. We did some back in, in September. We'll probably plan to do some in January. Church, we need to pray together. I don't know how else to say it. We need to pray together. A Godward church prays, and it prays together. It prays together. Without, without, if you will, that deliberate time of uniting our hearts before the Lord to seek his face, to seek his will, to seek his help, to seek his wisdom. We can't claim to be Godward. In prayer, prayer is one of those ways that we lean into him together. So pray without ceasing. He says, third, he says, give thanks in everything give thanks and everything and once again Paul has shown us a bit of what this means back in chapter 1 verse 2 he says we give thanks to God always for you all over in chapter 2 in verse 13 he expressed thanks for how they responded to the word as it was given in chapter 3 in verse 9 Paul is at a loss for how to express gratitude for what God has done in their lives. How how do I say thank you? How do you put that into words, Paul says, for what he has done in your lives and through your lives? Such deep gratitude. Give thanks in everything. This is a thankfulness that supersedes circumstances. It's rooted in the results of God's work. It's the ability to be thankful in everything And that is the result of believing that God is using everything for our ultimate good and for his eternal glory. That's where you find the thankfulness in it. It's not contained to an annual Thanksgiving service like we'll have the end of November. I want to invite you out to that. But it's a way of living, a Godward way of living. A Godward church is filled with thanksgiving and praise, not grumbling and complaining. And so those three commands. But he continues... He continues with more commands that I believe also evidence a Godward life. But I think the ones that continue are really what fuel the previous three. What fuel the previous three. Verse 19, don't quench the Spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. 21, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. If we're going to be a Godward church, we must be a church that is receptive to God's Spirit. Receptive to God's Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Paul's already talked again about the the work of the Holy Spirit to this church. In chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, The gospel came in the power of the Holy Spirit resulting in transformed lives. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says that, that the Spirit stirred joy within their hearts as an outflow of their trust in God. In chapter 4 and verse 8, God we're told that God gives his Holy Spirit who is working out our sanctification. He is working out our salvation. He is at work to guide us, to direct us, to convict us, to help us to walk properly in this world. He is working in us to form and fashion and shape us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit at salvation. He comes with new life at the new birth. And that life transforms. And and the Spirit is the one who is working within us. He teaches us. He convicts us. He guides us. He gives us ministry assignments. He empowers us to do them. And thus Paul's instruction, don't quench that work. Don't suppress the work of the Spirit. Don't grieve Him. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Don't ignore his conviction of sin in your life. Don't ignore his promptings of direction. Learn to live in the presence of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You have by faith, because of the glorious gospel, you have within you, if you are in Christ, you have within you the Holy Spirit. Let him work. Don't think that you have to do all this on your own. Don't think that somehow you just got to work hard. I've got to work harder at being just a more rejoicing person. I have to work harder at being more of a praying person. I have to work harder at being a more thankful person. No, allow the Spirit of God to do his work in you. Stop fighting against him. Stop pushing against him. Stop ignoring him. And he will stir within you. He will generate within you joy and prayer and thankfulness. Be receptive to God's Spirit. Continues on, I believe, and I would summarize these other verses under the heading of be receptive to God's Word. Be receptive to God's Word. Notice he says in verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Certainly in that first century era, God was was providing prophecies to to people in in, in the churches. Sometimes he he, he gave a supernatural revelation. He gave a word. It was part of the revelatory work that was happening there in that first century. Paul has really already brought this up again in his letter to the Thessalonians. Again, if you want to go back and look at chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, listen, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, you need to understand, when, when they received this letter from Paul, they didn't receive it bound up in something that said the Bible on it, okay? That didn't happen until a little while later where all of these letters collected and recognized for what they were. So this letter comes from Paul, okay, and well, how, what, what should they do with it? how are they to respond to, 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 to this man paul as he comes and he, he he supposedly is declaring you know the word of the lord and then he writes these letters and, and, and paul here is commending them he said he said as you as you heard me teach and even as you've received these things you recognize where this came from that this came from god himself came from god himself In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God. On what basis can he say that? Well, he was speaking as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in verse 8 of chapter 4 and says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do not despise this word. Because it is the word of the Lord. In chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, For this we, de- we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So Paul himself in this time, he, he is receiving revelations from the Lord. How all that worked, we don't know. He is receiving revelations from the Lord as he is is proclaiming, as he is teaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he sits down and pens things like 1 Thessalonians, we are told from other scriptures that what was happening in all that is that the Holy Spirit was guiding him. We call it inspiration. So that as he was writing, he was writing the very words of God. They were coming from his pen, through his thought patterns, to his pen, onto that paper. But the Holy Spirit of God, who was the one one who was superintending, directing that, so that what Paul was declaring, what Paul was writing, was from God himself. Don't despise these things, Paul says. Don't despise these things. At the end of this book, in chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, this is a pretty bold statement, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Don't despise this. Don't regard it of no value. Don't ignore it like we're, conti- we're conditioned to do with the incessant barrage of information. Don't quickly hit delete. This isn't just the word of the Lord that might come from the mouth of the preacher, but from a brother or sister in Christ who comes up and shares with you the word of God, shares with you some things God has put on their heart from, from the scriptures. Listen, listen. He says, as a part of this, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. By what standard? Well, in the New Testament, when Scripture was still being written, the standard was the apostles and their associates. You know, prophecies would come. We, hear, we read in the New Testament the word of knowledge, and uh, there, there, would, there would be a word of wisdom. There might be a word of warning. But it was also an age of false teachers who claimed to have a prophetic voice. And how would you know what was true and what wasn't? Well, there was the gift of discernment that was given. But always, 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 the requirement was that any prophetic utterance agree with apostolic teaching. Especially, especially true in these matters of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Test all things. What's our standard of testing? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. That's our standard of testing. Don't despise the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. One of the reasons we give priority to preaching in our worship, not for the glory of the preacher, not because we haven't already declared truth in song, but because of the eternal importance of sitting under this declaration. Thus saith the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. One of two outcomes will come from this testing. As a result of testing all things, you are then to hold on to what is good, that is believe it and act according to it, make it your life, and you are to abstain on the other hand from every form of evil. Keep your distance from evil in every form, whether it be doctrine, whether it be behavior. Knowing the difference is going to be a matter of discernment, which is what the Spirit of God will grant to us. A Godward life is... Receptive and responsive to God's Spirit and to God's word, which is what allows us to see ourselves accurately, that we're sinners rescued from hell, being made fit for God for all eternity, is what allows us to see our circumstances correctly, that, that that nothing is without purpose in the life of a believer. God is always working. This is what allows us to see our world realistically. And understand that there's a providential hand of God over it all? You see, a Godward life sees every event, every person, every thought, every possibility in relation to God. So let me just ask you. Are you a Godward person? Is God the one toward whom your life is aimed? Is he the one into whom you are leaning That's a question I have to ask myself regularly. Why do so many Christians maintain a shallow relationship with God that's fragile? That's tentative. That's on and off again. That's hot and cold. Or they're not receptive to God. Or they have longings for something more, but they do nothing about it. Not leaning into him. Sitting back. Sitting out. turned toward other things. Is that you? See, God did not save you to make you the center of your life. Nor your family. Nor your career. Nor your dreams. He saved you to make him the center of your life. Church, are we a Godward church? Does the deepest kind of rejoicing come out in our worship, as we sing, as we fellowship, in our conversations? The joy of the Lord, the joy of salvation, the joy of transformation. Do do we manifest the kind of intentional, earnest prayerfulness called for here? Are we constantly thankful people, ready and eager to share it as we come together with one another? Are we receptive to the Spirit's work? Are we responsive to God's word? That's a Godward life. And that, church, is the life to which we're called. Help us, Father, I pray, to live our lives toward you. Individually, yes, but as a church, Lord, our our collective life as a church live toward you, evidenced in our rejoicing and our praying and our thankfulness our thankfulness, evidenced in, in our sensitivity to the work of your Spirit uh, w- within us as individuals, the work of your Spirit within our church, our receptivity to, to the Word of God. Lord, let, it, let us not just desire things and then do nothing about it. But Lord, as your Spirit begins to press in and stir godly desires, may we in turn respond by pursuing, and yielding, and surrendering. May we live Godward lives. May we be a Godward church, I pray. As we respond to God's word, we're going to sing just a moment. Our heads bowed and eyes closed right now. I urge you to respond in song, yes, but perhaps there's some things in your heart that need to be settled. Perhaps you don't even know Christ as Savior. You've not started this new life we're talking about. I urge you, call upon the Lord to be your Savior today. Confess your need. Call upon Christ who died in your place to pay for your sin, to come to be in your life. And, Christian, I just ask you to answer the question are you living a Godward life? Does that describe you? If not, what steps would God have you to take that you might lean into Him, that your life and everything about it might be lived? toward him. May we respond accordingly, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.